thank you and greetings from, from Beeson Divinity School. Uh, intimidating to know that my colleagues have been here a lot the last six years. That means it's been really good, and I don't want to let them down. I don't want to let you down. I don't want to let the Lord down. So let's let's go to the Lord with the prayer, uh, in prayer before we get started. Lord, may we be faithful this morning by your Spirit. Let the words of my mouth be pleasing with the meditation of our hearts bring you glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've had a long history with doubt. I can remember sitting in the pews of my Southern Baptist church growing up and hearing sermons with tropes like this. If you're only 99% sure, you're 100% lost. And if you are a sensitive teenager, that's pretty scary. That can lead to some serious psychological anguish. I can remember the anxiety I felt as a college student at what I like to call the Harvard of the South, Georgia Southern University. <laughs> and uh, I was a business major, and I thought, oh, the Lord is calling me into ministry. Maybe I should take some Bible classes. Um, state school, New Testament class. So my first religion class at State University, I was committed and fairly naive. And I realized that my first religion, my, that my youth group pizza parties had not prepared me for that experience. In my 20s, I felt the pain of being that guy in Bible studies, the guy who couldn't get past the first verse because my head was spinning over whether this verse contradicted with this verse, or what was going on exactly with the Nephilim in Genesis 6, or whether I was, what I was learning in science could square with the Bible, or if, and you could just add to that, the list can go on and on. And this was before um, you could jump on Reddit threads, or do Google searches and enter a whole, what seems like a never-ending rabbit hole of people um, critiquing and who sound very, very smart and often are very smart and yet don't have faith. The demons of doubt have never been completely banished, but now at least the legions mostly hide out in the shadows. There are times they can unpredictably surface a report of another school shooting a loved one gets a terminal diagnosis or in more mundane experiences walking through an airport and, and thinking are we just ants marching walking through a museum Peering at the tangible traces of people who lived before Christ. And I wonder, why did Jesus come so late? These kinds of questions aren't new. We have 2,000 years of church history of people wrestling with them and responding them to them in different ways. And I often go back to the history of the church. We're not the first ones to ask these types of things. But in the end, I'm not always sure which of the possible explanations is correct. 
And so over time, I've had to learn to live with unknowns. I've learned that maturity in life means living with different degrees of confidence. I've learned, maybe in short, just to say, I've learned to live with mystery. And so, yes, I live by faith in God and in God who, who makes sense of things. Still, there's much I can't make sense of. As the Apostle Paul puts it, I see, but I see through a glass darkly. Through Christ, as believers, we really do see, but darkness can still linger if we're honest. Doubt comes. Disillusionment comes. And I say all of this not to open my talk to valorize my own doubt or to valorize anyone's doubt. As if we should, when the subject of doubt comes up, pat ourselves on the back and celebrate it. As if doubt is a good thing. That would not be what the Bible teaches. But the struggle with doubt, the reality of doubt, is not something we should condemn either. Instead, doubt is a reality that we need to learn to face, that we need to learn to walk through. And I don't believe one can simply snap their fingers to produce or sustain faith in the midst of doubt and disillusionment. But I do believe you can, we can, learn to seek and live in such a way that faith will be there in the end. This doesn't mean your doubts or your misgivings or your disillusionment, if you come this weekend with any of those, will completely vanish after you hear my two talks in a sermon. It's important as a speaker we set expectations, right? Or if you just buy my book, then everything will be okay. If anyone tells you that, please run the other way. Put, keep your hand on your wallet and run the other way. I don't have a magic wand. So many times in ministry I wish I did. I wish I had a magic wand to simply alleviate doubt from my friends and my family members from myself so I don't have a magic wand for you this weekend but I do have a word of well what I hope is a word of hope a good word doubt doesn't have to be the final word disillusionment with the church doesn't have to be the final word it doesn't have to incapacitate our faith I believe in Jesus Christ and the claims of his early followers for a variety of what I find very a variety of what I find to be very good reasons. I've learned to keep seeking, digging around in books, lots of books, talking to other Christians, being in communities like this, where people really know me and I really know them, and walking through these struggles together, trying on ancient ways of seeing, because we're so so many times we're Andrew these kind of late modern glasses that affect how we attend to the world around us. I think this is where history again helps us. I've learned to explore at what at times have seen new practices, new ways of inhabiting the world. But often these new practices for me are actually very ancient practices. Practices that the church has handed down to us. In other words, I've Found ways to deal with doubt, not to vanquish all my doubts, but to grow through them, even with them. I've learned that God, in His sovereignty, can mysteriously bring good from suffering, including the agony of doubt, including the agony of disillusionment.
And so this weekend, I want to share with you some of what I've learned through the years and trace at least one path to faith, hope, and love. I think this is a timely, re, uh, timely kind of, I think this is the right moment in churches and for, and, and Lord willing for you to have, for us to have this conversation because of some of the things going on culturally right now. Some of you have maybe heard of the, church, the book called The Great Dechurching that's recently come out by Michael Graham and Jim Davis. And one of the things that they point out in the last 25 years, 40 million Americans have left the church. I, didn't, I should have Googled before I gave this talk, but we're, I think we're at somewhere around 300 million Americans. And over the last 25 years, 40 million have left the church. Now, there's a variety of reasons why that's the case. I want to give you just... And, and, oh, by the way, did we get handouts coming in? Do you have a, you have a handout? Let's you do. Okay, that's, that'll be helpful for you as we walk through. Always a teacher didn't have a PowerPoint, so we're using handouts. Um, so that'll be helpful for you if you don't have one. So just three quick things to kind of say. Yes, on one hand, the church... Uh, uh, on one hand, people have always struggled with doubt. You can open up your New Testament and we'll, we'll be reflecting on the story of Thomas on Sunday. But he wasn't the only disciple to struggle with doubt. Some even, after having seen the resurrected Lord, doubted, we're told, in the Gospels. So doubts, we don't want to say it's altogether a new thing, but there have been some particular things that have happened historically that have have changed uh, even the struggle with doubt. And one of those is is what's sometimes called disenchantment. Let me describe it like this. If you read Martin Luther... Martin Luther of the Reformation, what you'll find in some ways is, is a very different character than probably anyone in this room. Martin Luther, he, he believed demons were all around him. And not only all around him, he would imagine there, he could quite, if, he, if you talked about, if, when he talks about demons, he would imagine he could almost, he, he might turn around this corner and see one. That's how he imagined the world. It was a very enchanted view of, of the, the actual physical world was enchanted all around him. And this wasn't something he so much reasoned his way to. It was the air he breathed. And so if you, if you go back further in church history to, to say about a thousand years before in Augustine, and he's writing his great apologetic work, The City of God, he just starts talking about demons. <laughs> He doesn't have to argue for them, right? Well, you can imagine in our context today, if you were talking to a, to a non-believer, you, you know, that might not be the first thing you talk about, right? Because they don't share that in common with you, right? You'd have to make some kind of argument. I guess it doesn't have to make an argument for demons. That was just the air, right? And my point isn't so much about demons, but the point about this enchanted cosmos that they just spontaneously imagined. They didn't have to reason their way. If you would have said, is that what your worldview? They would have said, what do you mean? It's just obvious, right? Of course, we, we live in a world filled of spirits and spiritual realities. And so, of course, historically speaking, for a variety of different reasons, uh, those aren't the common assumptions of the late modern person. 
And so that's one thing. We open up the, the world, the Bible, and it can just seem so strange and weird and crazy to us with our late modern eyes. The second thing is um, what I would call the contestability of faith. And so how this works, I just want to mention a couple things. One is just pluralism, right? It is rubbing shoulders with people who are, don't believe the same things you believe. And of course, Christians have always known, and especially early on, uh, in the first, it was born into a pluralistic culture, right? So this isn't foreign to Christianity, but um, for a long time in the West, because of Christendom, because of the dominance of Christianity, it just seems, yes, we know there's some people who don't, don't, don't believe quite the same thing we do, but it, we, we just didn't rub shoulders with them in the same way we do now. In other words, you could just kind of say, well, they're heathens and they don't know anything and they're just dumb. And now we sit in science classes with them at university and they're better than us at science. And, yeah, they're, they're smarter than us in so many ways. So we can't simply dismiss them. Oftentimes they, they, seem, they seem to be more virtuous than, than us in some ways. And so this kind of, this kind of pluralism has this proximity of different beliefs in the same space has a psychological effect, and understandably so. And then we add to that the internet, as I've already mentioned, which is a whole new ballgame. It's a whole new ballgame, right? You could maybe stay kind of cloistered away in your own kind of religious communities. Um, And now, very early on, Kids through the internet are not only exposed to you know, uh, pornographic material, various other things like that, but also just lots of other ideas. People challenging the things they're taught. And so this leads to this feeling, this contestability of our faith. You still believe, but you could imagine not believing in a way that Luther couldn't. Luther would challenge the whole Roman Catholics. He would, he would challenge the Roman Catholic Church, but he, and he had his doubts about his own, his own righteousness before holy God, but he wasn't doubting that there was a God. That wasn't the source of Luther's doubt. He wasn't doubting the whole Christian system. And then the third kind of reason this is timely for us is we have a massive crisis of trust right now in our, in our culture. Polarization. And so we have these shrinking communities of trust. We smaller and smaller are the numbers of people we'll actually pay attention to and trust as authority. And within that you have, because, um, because of scandal after scandal, the shrinking trust in the authority of the church, its leaders, its people. And of course, in bearing witness, bearing witness relies on a certain amount, a certain level of trust in the person who's bearing witness. And so, we bear witness with the gospel. Um, as our as our trust is undermined, that that brings more challenges to that. So, in in our time this weekend, I I don't attempt to tidily answer. I, I'm not going to attempt to tidily answer all your all the questions that might be. Plaguing you, although I'm happy to talk to you more about those in the breaks. 
because I think trying to do so would be glib. Nor do I think that I can teach you, for those of you who come in with kids and grandkids who are, who are dealing with this, who are in the throes of doubt, I'm, I, I don't have any doubt-zapping laser guns to offer, all, I offer to you during the breaks either. But I, what I do want to offer is a kind of pattern of thinking. I want to suggest practices to engage in and, and a couple of test cases that I hope you can relate to. With the aim of doing what C.S. Lewis describes as falling back into the reality of Christ. And particularly in, this, in tonight's talk, I'm going to talk about falling into the reality of Christ and what that means. In this session, or for the rest of the session, I want to talk about two figures. One's a cautionary tale, and the other provides it for us what I would suggest is the model for us in the midst of doubt and disillusionment. So the cautionary tale, the first figure is the modern-day scholar Bart Ehrman. Now, let me just get, I'm just curious, who, who has heard of Bart Ehrman? Any? Okay, so a handful. Um, Bart Ehrman is the author of multiple New York Times bestselling books. And is a biblical scholar who teaches at the University of North Carolina. His popular writings are framed with his own story, his own journey from fundamental, in his own words, fundamentalism to evangelicalism to agnosticism and, and, and finally to agnosticism with heavily atheistic leanings, which I'm still deciphering what that exactly means. Um, Ehrman went to Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton, Princeton, studied at it under a fairly conservative Protestant at Princeton. Uh, before, and it, but it was at Princeton when he made this turn into agnosticism. By, by telling his own story, Ehrman tells of how he began losing his faith during this time at Princeton and over time, his kind of misgivings turned into, well, more misgivings. His, his journey is told as a coming-of-age story, a finally facing the facts of a hard-earned unbelief, culminating in his belief that the Bible probably isn't what he had long thought it was. Thought it was. For Ehrman, the floodgates, in his own words, the floodgates opened, and he came to see the Bible as a very human book. Filled with errors. While Ehrman's departure from his earlier evangelical views and fundamentalist views of the Bible certainly shook him, it wasn't the breaking point. That came in his own words when he could no longer explain how there could be a good and all powerful God actively involved with this world given the state of things. Now, having said that, um, I don't agree with Ehrman, but I'm sympathetic. I don't agree with Ehrman, but I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic with his struggle. And in some ways, along my own journey, I've come close to even agreeing with him. In fact, I'm not startled when people admit they can't answer the problem of evil. Instead, the more I've thought about this, the more I've reflected on human suffering and evil, the more I'm taken aback when someone claims they can, when someone claims they can answer this. 
So I don't have an answer for you this morning, but I do have a response. It's not quite the same thing. I do have a response. I think we can speak to this intelligibly, rationally as Christians. But it's not quite the answer. At least not in how I think Ehrman was looking for it. Often the way that some well-meaning Christians, and I really mean that, well-meaning Christians approach the questions, I think, avoids the difficulties here. In trying to justify God, we can sometimes overreach and justify too much. When an answer to the problem of Ehrman does to the problem of evil does that, I find myself responding sometimes with a kind of Ehrman-like skepticism. But there's different forms of skepticism, if I can if I can try to rehabilitate that word for just a second in a certain way. The, the greatest, well, arguably the, the most important Christian philosopher of the 20th century, Alvin Plantinga, says that Christians shouldn't claim to know the answer to the problem of evil. I think that's an overreach we shouldn't make. Christians don't, this is what he says, Christians don't, nor do other believers in God, as far as I know, really know why God permits evil. This brings me to two posture problems. This is on your sheet. Two posture problems that Ehrman's story illustrates. So there's, there's an application here. If you don't like the philosophical stuff, just hang with me. There's application throughout. Problem number one, an overconfidence in our own capacities to understand and solve. People commonly assume that if God exists, all his cards are, shall we say, on the table. And so with a, with a confidence in our cognitive powers, we moderns imagine there's no uh, divine idea that we should not be able to grasp. Notably, we as believers can, can display a similar overconfidence in our ability to answer the whys of evil. This sometimes happens. The speaker strides up in a Christian context to the pulpit, pulpit and claims to have answered the problem. It's tidy. The Christian audience feels good. Heightening their expectations. They imagine that these expert apologists in the Christian academy have solved all these problems. But then one day they begin to grow out of these solutions. In fact, one of the reasons I'm using this as an initial test case is because of this, I believe, this kind of extreme confidence in ourselves, this kind of extreme confidence in our own, in our own cognitive powers, our extreme confidence that we've mastered the things of God, can spill over into many parts of our life. We get comfortable in our safe, suburban lifestyles, unconsciously going about our days and weeks feeling as we've got a pretty good handle on things. And then things hit the fan. A pandemic hits. A cancer diagnosis comes our way. We're faced with the reality that life is fragile, that we don't have the kind of control that we would like to think we have. And so in response, we frantically try to control as much as possible. But the result is that we're we're burdened with this sense of deep angst. 
We're left confused, even angry. And we don't know how to cope given our own vulnerability. We don't know how to cope given our own humanness, our own mortality. I'd suggest that all of this is a symptom of this delusional, and I might add, and I think I can in this audience, sinful view of our own capacities. This misplaced confidence in our own capacity to reach to the heavens has metastasized in our modern world. Again, how we spontaneously imagine the world to be. After all, we imagine evil, suffering, death, or old problems. But now we've, we, we should be able to understand. If there is a God, we should be able to understand why he's allowed these things. But in old societies, the more ancient posture is to think less of our own cognitive capacities. To think more about God. To think God is bigger than we might be imagining him to be. To think that God might have reasons that are beyond our kin. Previous societies wrestled with these things emotionally and intellectually. They weren't turning their brain off. Yet their struggles led to lament, which is a form of worship. Yes, confusion at times, but not widespread unbelief. We see this in Job. We see this in the the psalmists. They wrestled with God. They prayed to God with a deep sense of intimacy. But their suffering didn't lead them to deny God. Now we assume that by analyzing and deciphering the cosmic stage, we should be able to solve these ancient problems. Faith, sometimes, for us can become like a math problem. We try to solve doubt with an equation. Maybe we know it's not that simple, but we want an easy formula when our kids are struggling, when our grandkids are struggling. And so, but for many on this point, when they begin to have this overconfidence in their own capacities, when they begin to look at suffering and they can't find any good reasons that they can think of that a good guy would allow this, then they make the turn that Ehrman made. And hence, Ehrman's book is titled, or one of his books is titled, God's Problem. Suffering evil is God's problem. This leads to problem number two. Again, a cautionary tale, problem number one. This is what we see in Ehrman, maybe in different ways, we've imbibed that in our own lives, this kind of overconfidence in our own capacities. Rather than a big God and a small us, we reverse that. Problem number two are false expectations for how Christianity and the Bible actually work. Ehrman sets out to describe the Bible as offering five different responses to the problem of evil. Listen to this list. Is this on your sheet? Okay. Listen to this list. And as you're looking at it, and I'll read it, think about this biblically. I know you guys... I grew, four years in college, by the way, I went to Presbyterian Church. Love the PCA. Um, and, and just learned so much from um, during this time. And I know you're Bible people. So think about these five things. And I'm just curious. You can participate at this point. What, what do you think about this list? Suffering comes from God as punishment against sin. 
Suffering is the result of human beings sinning against other human beings. Suffering is redemptive. Suffering is a test of faith. Suffering is at times mysterious. These are different points that Irvin makes in his book. He's just saying, this is what the Bible says. What do y'all think? I know, it's like a big crowd. You don't want to say anything. I get it. Okay, I just want you to think about it. You don't have to speak. I think it's a pretty good list. I think it's pretty good. I think Yerman studies the Bible. That's what I think. So what's the problem here? Well, I agree, as I said, I agree with him that all of these are found in the Bible. But this, and I want you to go back to how his, his, his view of the Bible, is it... I want you to see how it's, it's connected, or, or, or let me put this differently, his expectation of how the Bible worked, and then his disillusionment because of these wrong expectations of how the Bible works actually spills over into this problem. And so this, I want you to see this is a posture issue, among other things. Because what Ehrman does is he pits the biblical responses Against each other. Well, which one is it? Is it punishment or is it, redemp- is it redemption? Is it a test of faith? Or is it the result of human beings sinning against other human beings? Or is it just mysterious and we can't say anything? And so you see how this posture begins to say, well, this part of the Bible and this part of the Bible. But there's no reason to do that, right? It's expectations on what we're to find. Nothing demands, and in fact, I would argue, the Bible demands that we don't read it like that. See, no good reason. Even historically speaking, even if we take on some of Ehrman's assumptions here, I see no reason that biblical authors would want to just repeat the exact same answers to a very complicated human question and problem. Ancient readers certainly didn't expect a separate sacred text to work this way. The biblical authors are aware and respect the broader textual tradition. We see this. Old Testament authors are citing and building upon and reflecting on other Old Testament authors. New Testament authors are reflecting on the Old Testament. So they're aiming to expand and layer responses to weighty concepts like evil and suffering and agency. In doing so, they offer us a web of responses framed in a particular in particular ways for particular communities that get at the complexity of evil. So, as I come to the text, this is one of the this is one of the great things about the Bible, right? Different contexts, all inspired by God and yet written by human authors. Who are, who, are, who are looking at this problem in different ways. Who are lifting it up and saying, yes, it's also this. Yes, it's also this. We have these rich features of, the, of a biblical text that come at us if we allow it to speak. If we have proper expectations. I love how Chris Watkins has recently put this. He says, the biblical responses are reductive if treated in isolation. But when they are woven together in the biblical canon, they provide a rich, complex, and existentially authentic view of the world. 
So here, my point here is expectations matter. And what, what if some of our problems are expectations of how the Bible should work? How the Bible must work? Expectations that are sometimes inherited from well-meaning Christian communities and remain intact long after a person has moved on. However, if you read the scriptures from a different perspective, give up these wrong expectations of how the Bible should work, you might just discover the richness and layered responses that you need. This is what happened to me. The more I've studied the Bible, the more I've come to see it as offering these nuanced responses to life's most important questions. Like a wise teacher, the Bible, the Bible favors textual responses over rote answers. The responses on one hand are intelligible for young children and yet brimming with enough nuance and depth to hold the attention of philosophers of any age if it's received with the appropriate posture, appropriate humility. The Bible is offering us a way to live. This is going to be a theme again this after this evening. The Bible is giving us Yes, doctrine, but not simply doctrine. The Bible's offering this way to inhabit the world. And I should add, this way to inhabit the world is a way that allows us to walk with God in the uncertainties and pain of life. And so now I want to circle back around to the first problem. What am I doing? What am I shooting for here? Chris? Sorry, I didn't look when I started. 20 minutes. Okay, that's great. All right, so I want to circle around, back around, and just address this head on. And some of you might not be wrestling with this. Some of you might, but um, you will likely, if you're not, you're likely going to talk to somebody who is wrestling with this, the very logical side of this, and I just want to respond to that really quickly. Okay, so here is the logical problem of evil as philosophers have long presented it. God is all-powerful. Thinking about the God presented, particularly here in the Bible, God is all loving and there is suffering. After surveying the responses of this, uh, to this problem, Ehrman concludes that an all-powerful and all-loving God cannot exist along the suffering because he cannot think of any good reasons why God would allow. If he was good, he wouldn't allow this. If he was good and all-powerful, he wouldn't allow this. But the Bible offers a fourth premise. And by now, maybe you're already thinking it, given what I've already said. Neither The Bible's fourth premise to this is that neither God nor his ways can be fully known by humans. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that God cannot be known. God has spoken, so he can be known. But the Bible has not. Those five answers aren't an exhaustive answer. And in fact, there's indications all through the Bible that this is, it, it was not meant to be some kind of exhaustive answer. The, Bible, the biblical authors assume God is infinite and we are finite. Christianity has said God is omnipotent and good, there is suffering, and God's ways transcend our understanding. And so this fourth premise changes the conclusion. The philosopher John Wickstra, and some of you have maybe heard this because I think this has gone down through several philosophers and then Tim Keller in his book Reason for God points to this. 
But John Wickstra had this original analogy in an academic journal article. He talks about um, noceums. Now, I, you, might, you don't have to know what a noceum is to know what a noceum is, right? <laughs> it's a bug that you can't see. And if I came to you today and I brought my dog Otis, he's a very cute bishla, and he weighs 50 pounds, and I said, I said, this is my dog, you would be able to see that dog, right? And you would be able to confirm that with your eyesight. So if I came to you today and, and I said, this is Otis, and Otis isn't here, you would have good reason to think me a liar or crazy and not let me give the second talk, right? Because right? you can see 50-pound dogs. If I said, there's a noceum there, what would you conclude? You would not know. I could be a liar and delusional. It might be that you shouldn't allow me to give the second talk today. We'll see how this goes the rest of the time. But, what you, but you don't know that because you can't see noceums. And so what Wickstra is saying is... If there is a God, and if this God is anything like the God that's presented by Christians, he says this, quote, We have good reasons to think that if there were God-purposed goods for suffering, God has his reasons. God has his reasons for suffering. God has a reason for the world being the way it is. Those reasons he says, would often be beyond our kin. It's not that we can't say anything about it, because the Bible does speak about these things in various ways, but they would often be beyond our kin. This is why another philosopher, John Cottingham, says this, and I believe it's in your notes. To believe in God is not to be able to explain why terrible things happen and why many lives are ruined or tragically cut short. The message of the book of Job is absolutely clear on this point. There is no explanation, or no explanation we can comprehend. I think that's an important addition to his quote here. To be a believer is not to solve this problem. Again, the math, the math kind of equation, uh, the, the math equation uh, view of faith here. He's saying, no, it's not that. But it's something else entirely. It is to hold that the meaning and purpose of our lives is to live in accordance with the sacred requirements of justice and compassion to believe in God, is to believe that we are required by a holy and inviolable power, not of ourselves, to do what is right and avoid what is wrong. So if we leave these misguided expectations, you, or I need to add, the folks you're ministering to, right beside, right next to Auburn, our students are often asking these types of questions. What, what, what you might be able to help them do is to discover that there's compelling reasons to believe at the root of their doubts. You see this? Now this is what happened to C.S. Lewis. For those of you, most of you, I'm sure, have at least heard of Lewis. Lewis was an atheist before he was, became... Well, the most well-known Christian apologist of the 20th century. But he re- once rejected Christianity along lines similar to Ehrman. Yet Lewis later saw that the problem of evil was itself a problem that atheism couldn't explain. 
This is how we put it. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? In other words, the fact that the fact that evil is a problem, I mean just the fact that it's a problem for all of us. A problem that perplexes us and repulses us and angers us seems to gesture that there's something beyond this. Given the deep intuition that this world isn't as it should be. One of the things we need to do in the midst of doubt, in the midst of those who are ministering to who are doubting, is ask the question, why shouldn't it be like this? Why would we expect a world of nothing more than, given someone else's terms, a world nothing more of matter and energy to be anything other than absurd and violent? Why do we struggle so fiercely against the reality of the way we know things are? Like Lewis, if we go so far as reject God on the basis of evil, we are intuitively bearing witness that we believe in some kind of standard beyond us and beyond our culture and beyond this world that judges. It might just be that buried beneath skeptical doubts are reasons to believe. For not only does Christianity proclaim a moral universe and provide a foundation for these intuitions, that seem basically inescapable for the human. Christianity also provides resources for us. Resources for what our current moment perhaps needs most. The ability to face evil. To live through suffering. Without surrendering to the worst of our tendencies as humans. And to say the least, that is a big, big deal right now. The, the, Colombian, the, the University of Columbia professor, Andrew, Andrew Dalbanco, has, has written a book, not a Christian, but he's talking about our cultural moment, and he says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. If you just look at our mental health crisis right now, we are not very good at a society with coping. We've lost some ancient wisdom here. Our posture seems to be off. Of course, there's a variety of reasons for that. And no doubt some are very physical. But I'd also say there's, a, there's spiritual reasons for those in many cases as well. There's a posture that we have taken, that we just assume. We haven't necessarily reasoned to, but we just inhabit Another way we might say this is, back to this, to, to Ehrman, is critiquing is easy. Ehrman has critiqued the Christian position. And, and offering critiques is fair, fairly even, but offering a consistent, livable alternative is rather more difficult. And I want to argue that we all, as humans, have to live somewhere. And so if you're walking through doubt or you're walking with someone through their doubt, one of the things to help them see is that we're not leaving Christianity to just kind of wander through the world 
that, that we're leaving a kind of space into a nothingness. No, we're always going to be jumping into some kind of space, some way to live, some way of life. So an important question for us to ask is, how will this way of life, if not this, if not Christianity, then what, how will you live? And so to draw on Del Banco's statement about our culture's lack of intellectual resources. I want to spend the last few minutes before I pivot to our second figure. And don't worry, that'll be really quick. The second figure. Because I'm going to use him to set up tonight's session. I want us to look really quickly at how Ehrman's agnosticism gives us ways to cope with evil and suffering. Now this is important, right? Because in the midst of disillusionment, in the midst of media scandal, it can be like, hey, I'm leaving this because I don't like this. I don't, I don't like this for a variety of different reasons. I don't like this Christianity thing. But then oftentimes people are less, a lot less critical about what they're about to step into. And so, so it's always the question of, well, then what? Then what? And it's also, well, I'll, I'll say that till tonight for us as believers as well. It, even if you're not struggling with that, there's some important implications, but I'll, I'll leave that for the night. So Ehrman believes... This life is all there is. But he doesn't find this to be what he says is an occasion for despair and despondency. Instead, as he puts it, this should be a source of joy and dreams. Joy of living for the moment and dreams of trying to make the world a better place, both for ourselves and for others in it. This is, in other words, we might as well go ahead and say it. This is gospel. You know, this is good news, according to, to Ehrman. And he, he continues, I think we should work hard to make the world, the one we live in, the most pleasing place it can be for ourselves. We should love and be loved. We should cultivate our friendships, enjoy our intimate relationships, cherish our family lives. I just want to say amen to all of that. We should make money and spend money. The more the better. We should enjoy good food and drink. We should eat out and order unhealthy desserts. And we should cook steak on the grill and drink Bordeaux. We should walk around the block, work in the garden, watch basketball, and drink beer. We should travel and read books and go to museums and look at art and listen to music. We should drive nice cars and have nice homes. We should make love and have babies and raise families. We should do what we can to love life. It's a gift, and it will not be with us for long. But we should also work hard to make our world the most pleasing place it can be for others. We need to live life to its fullest and help others as well. To enjoy the fruits of the land. Now, I just want to say, in all of this, I am, and it might, come, it might have come across this way, that I'm not trying to pick on Bart Ehrman, right? I think he's, he's an example that we can learn from because he makes some wrong moves. But in, in so many ways, what he's saying here is kind of the spirit of the age. You know, you be you, live life, and be a good person. That, that is so often what I'm hearing as, as this kind of way of life. Ehrman urges an unvarnished pursuit of personal contentment and pleasure in things this world has to offer. But note that Ehrman's advice offers us measly resources for practically living out the ethics, fortitude, and joy that he commends. He offers us no moral grounding for why someone should feel obligated to live the kind of moral life he describes. The first part of the vision Enjoying life by way of nice cars and homes and food will inevitably be in tension with his charge to help others. 
while I share this moral sensibility, we should help others. That we should care for others. Why do so if it requires us giving up spending time in our own gardens? Or if it prevents us from working the overtime required to move up into a nicer neighborhood? Ehrman never gives a motivating rationale for putting others up, even before ourselves. And if Ehrman is correct in saying that this world is all there is, then one should be willing to look realistically at what it means to live consistently in this space. What does it mean for those who can't enjoy cars and fine wines? What does this mean for the poor? What does this mean for those who can't enjoy for those who enjoy things like cars and fine wine, but are crippled with dull emptiness and anxious restlessness. That's what the stats are showing right now. It's in the midst of abundance that people are having mental health crises. What, what does this mean for the person in hospice care with a terminal diagnosis? The clouds of suffering and loss which Ehrman reminds us of so powerfully in his book, if you read the book, it's, it's not a devotional read. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but it's, it's just filled with how bad the world is. And then we have this kind of chirpy news at the, at the end. It casts a dark shadow over the gift of life Ehrman encourages us to enjoy. But if Ehrman is correct, if we are alone in the universe, then we need to face the fact that this good news that he gives us rings hollow. Instead of proclaiming joy to be found in the news that this life is all there is, I think it's just another way of saying, actually, there's no help coming. There's no grace that comes in. As one author puts it, he says, it amounts to a denial of hope or consolation. On any but the most chirpy, squeaky, bubblegummy reading of the human situation. St. Augustine called this kind of thing cruel optimism 1,500 years ago. And it's still cruel. Spufford's not alone. Many, many, many people in the midst of a disenchanted age, in the midst of the contestability, in the midst of this de-churching crisis that we're facing... Many people with similar doubts as Ehrman continue to believe. Not because they've solved the problem of evil or have figured out exactly what God is up to. Not because they have had all the questions answered. But instead, because like Lewis, they recognize the intuitions lying beneath their revulsion to evil. They can't shake the feeling that this world is not as it should be, but they also recognize this deep-seated intuition, that this deep-seated intuition isn't rational unless there's some kind of standard beyond this world. They also can't so easily reconcile the idea that life is all there, that this life is all there is, with the claim that there's nothing to be frightened of. And like your men, they sense, and again, this is what I Another point I share with Ehrman is that he senses that life is a gift. But where does this gift come from if not a giver? So yes, there are people today 
There are friends and family and, that are following the path of Yerman and they're leaving. But I think that's, in one sense, only rational, only logical. If you have the wrong expectations about how Christianity works and have this kind of overconfident sense of what we humans should be able to understand and decipher. But once we recalibrate, once we adjust our posture, once we learn to come in and help others see this as well, then I see that there's a whole lot of reasons to believe in the midst of doubt. And so many continue to do so. And so we look around acknowledging that we are recipients of gifts. Even at this true treat, as we enjoy one another, this is a gift. We are a gift to each other. And we, we look not only at each other, but we look upward. We see, in some sense, in this, as Augustine would teach us, we look through each other and up to God, the giver of these good gifts. And we trust the giver. We look at Jesus and see the one who not only, not only gave us life, but gave of his own life. And so I've mentioned Augustine throughout my talk, and I just want to say a couple things. Augustine, 1500 years ago, faced his own kind of deconstruction moment. He was, as it turns out, if you read Confessions, which I encourage you to do so, He's, he's going through in this ancient pluralistic context what I think could really map onto so many of our young people's experience today. Augustine's life story reminds us that even revered saints, people that maybe we only remember as great theologians, were often critics of their childhood faith that they grew up in for a season. Augustine's story reminds us that it's, it's, not, it's not what happens when you're in college or even in middle life, that there's grace that comes unexpectedly. Augustine was a prodigious young man who was raised in what were, what were the backwoods of the Roman Empire. Think small town, fundamentalist church, South Alabama. I mean, Roman Bible Belt. Okay, that's Augustine. For, for young Augustine, Christianity was basically synonymous with authoritarian leaders, hard and fast rules, and literalist interpretations of everything. Augustine's father was a pagan. His mom, Monica, was a devout Christian. And so he experienced a kind of cross-pressured existence from childhood. He could imagine one day growing up and not believing. And then he had this kind of ambition to make a name for himself, to be great, to be famous. All of these pressures were kind of bubbling in Augustine's life. And then he... He writes and tells of this in Confessions of this story of how he, he leaves his mom's, what he viewed as like his mom's his silly wife tells of Christianity to find coherence and truth and other options. So it's like he stepped out, to use that analogy, he tried these different ways of life. He worked hard to be somebody important. He tried to make a career for himself, to be someone of power and influence, to make his parents proud. But he couldn't escape this nagging fill of guilt and hunger. He tried on a kind of macho rationalism of the ancient world. 
He even, he even mocked religious believers for a while, touting how they just believe things on faith while he just used reason. I can imagine Augustine as having his own YouTube channel today and really monetizing that. I mean, he was, he could have easily fallen in with kind of the new atheist crowd for a season today. For a brief time, he, he tried to be a kind of skeptic, tried to just say, well, I'm not going to believe anything that I can't prove and I can't prove so much in life. So I'll just kind of live. But he realized he needed something more. And then something happened to Augustine. During his journey away from what we might call the stifling walls of the childhood version of Christianity that he experienced, Augustine developed the right posture. He learned to see his own pride as the foundation of his problem. He became aware of his own vulnerability, his own dependence on others. He came to see that he couldn't two plus two his way to God. He couldn't two plus two his way to the big questions of life. And so what happened to Augustine is he had to suffer. He had to suffer. But he learned that God was using his suffering to create humility. He was using his suffering as a way to bring him into deeper ways of knowing. He had become aware of how he had perceived Christianity wrongly and had developed the wrong expectation of how Christianity actually worked and what it was. And so to see clearly he would need to try on another posture, and that's what he did. And in this afternoon's session, or this evening's session, I want to pick up there and talk about what it means to step into a new posture and try on the reality of Christ. Thank you.